Can community and tradition have an active role in the justice system? For this episode of Interwoven's series, Modern Native Voices, I spoke with Elaine Yellowhorse of the Ogala Lakota Nation, a tribal prosecutor from the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, about her work with at-risk youth and her interest in restorative justice, education, and community. Here's an excerpt from our conversation. My name is Elaine Yellowhorse. I'm a member of the Ogala Lakota Nation. I'm from Windetney, South Dakota. What made you decide to be a tribal prosecutor? Um, it was a criminal law class in Dayton, Ohio. Is whenever, because first I wanted to be a police officer, right? Then I um, wanted to be the first woman chief of police for my reservation. <laughs> So then I started, like, working out and taking these classes because I'd be like, oh, I'd look good, you know. And then um, I moved back to the reservation, and I went to one of my friends' um, graduation from the Oglala Lakota College. And then they're giving out tribal law degrees, associates. And I was like, hey, I'm into tribal law. <laughs> that would look good on my resume, too. So I, I started taking classes, and you can either get an associate or you can get a bachelor's in Lakota studies with an emphasis in tribal law. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. Um, so I did that, and then I graduated in like three years because I wanted to get it over with. You know, like I hate school, so I was trying to get through as fast as I could. Um, and then I was working as EMT at the last year of college, which was a bad idea, because then I was on like a, I think I was getting like a four and then my grades just dumped it, you know. I think I graduated with like a 2.98 or something like that. But anyway, um, and then I graduated and then um, I graduated, got my diploma in June. I kept working July, August, September, like early September. I got a call from the Attorney General, Tatewi Means, and she was like, yeah, if you're interested in a temporary tribal prosecutor position, you know definitely want to talk to you about that and um she said she got my name from a list at the college so I was like hmm because then prior to that I was lifting this guy out of a car accident and um he was on her stretcher and I had this really tiny EMT that I was with so she was, had the legs so she like was tipping and then so I was trying to adjust and I slipped on some gravel we didn't drop him but like I just felt my back you know like just tighten so I was like oh definitely pulled something sure enough I ended up getting sciatica and then I was like well my EMT career is over you know so then I called her up and I was like yeah I'm definitely interested and then I started September 20th or 21st one of them uh 2013 yeah and then she trained me on the job training um, cause I knew like, you know, all the, the gist of criminal tribal law, but like, I didn't know like procedures, mm-hmm. process, what it meant to me in a courtroom and all that. So she trained me and she made me study the criminal law or the criminal code and the, um, court rules or the rules of the court. And so, and she was good, you know, she, she graduated from... University of Minnesota to her law degree. And then she was the longest attorney general in that position. 
she's pretty, she has a good mentor. She ended up being a really, becoming a really good friend. Um, so. What kind of cases do you prosecute? I prosecuted adult criminal cases. I was the, by the time I left, I was the adult criminal prosecutor. So I handled all the bench trials. And then I handled everything in juvenile criminal, because there's only four prosecutors for all of Pine Ridge Reservation. So I <clears throat> was a juvenile criminal prosecutor, handled the trials, motions, arraignments, sentencing. You know, I was basically also a probation officer, because we did monthly check-ins with the, the juveniles. And then with adult, I was the... In the beginning, I was the involuntary commitment prosecutor and the guardianship prosecutor, which I think was is good, the guardianship part, because, you know, you got a lot of really, like, elderly people off in all of these nursing homes spread across South Dakota, and if the state doesn't take guardianship of them, first they call our reservation if they're members of the Wallace tribe. So... We had about maybe over a hundred guardianship cases, and that's where you make medical decisions because, you know, families not active in the care plans, you know, deciding if it's DNR or resuscitate or anything like that. And, you know, there was a few times I think I had to make the decision to take people off life support, which was tough because I felt, you know, why do I have to do it? Why can't the family step up and do it, you know? But it was hard to get a hold of people, family members. I would try call the tribal enrollment office and say, hey, we have this tribal member who's on life support. We need to figure out who their family is. So we'd get names, search around for them, but couldn't find anybody. So finally, I was always like, right, let me know whenever they pass away. You know, and that, and I think I had to do it like six or seven times. And then you have to make decisions like, you know, if someone's diabetic or anything like that and they need an amputation. Mm-hmm. So I was quick to get out of that gig. I was like, can I do something else now? So, um, we, that's when Lynette came in and she took over on involuntary commitments and guardianships. I remember I had to help her through her first one that she had to, um, take off a of life support. Because these people are old, like I'm talking about like 90s, you know, mid to late 90s. And, you know, they lived a long time. I'm like, they had a good run, you know. So, and I remember Lynette was sitting there and she was like, well, so-and-so passed away. And I was like, really? How? And then I was like, oh, I remember when I first got them, you know. And I would tell her, like, what I knew about them. And she was like, yeah. I was like, how do you feel? And she was like. I feel kind of sad, even though I didn't know them. I was like, yeah, I was like, I did too. But just think they were getting the best care that they could at that nursing home. You know, if they were here, they would probably be getting neglected. And so I I helped her through all of that. And we were sitting there and um, she she started crying and stuff. And I was like, you know, I cried my first time. So I was like, you'll be all right. It's like, you're going to have another one, but it'll get easier. And I was like sitting there thinking, well, we shouldn't have to make those decisions, so it shouldn't have to get easier, you know? Is it easier working with juveniles than it is working with the elderly? <sighs> Not really. 
I think it's a whole different kind of heart. Because you have all these neglected, abused children, you know, who are acting out for some reason. It's always usually, you know, sexual assault, physical abuse. Parents are, you know, alcoholics or addicted to something. Um, my eye-opener, coming from adult court into juvenile court, because our juvenile criminal justice system was pretty non-existent. So then the AG was like... Hey, I want you to take over juvenile criminal. And I was like, you know, what next? <laughs> I was like, what else do you want me to do? I was like, you might as well give me, like, you know, youth and family and the whole thing. I'll revamp that. And then um, she was like, well, just juvenile criminal for now. And I was like, all right, fine. So I had to handle everything. I had to write my own criminal complaints. I had to, you know get together my own witness list and you know all that stuff but in adult court that's pretty much taken care of for you with our legal secretaries so we finally started having arraignments regularly and um the first juvenile criminal bench trial happened in December because she gave it gave me juvenile criminal in no end of November kind of and then in the criminal code juvenile criminal code you have 10 days to prosecute a case or bring it to bring it to trial so I was like all scared you know I was like oh Jesus my first trial I was like I'm nervous but in my mind I was like okay you either broke the law or you didn't you know black and white well that wasn't the case in this case everything that's when I learned about the gray area of law because you know, I prosecuted this kid. I was like, you know, this kid's a bad kid. I basically called him a monster. And, you know, I had my opening statement ready. I had all my evidence, you know, my questions for my, you know. I was just ready to go and I wanted to win because, you know, just like, I'm pretty sure the federal prosecutors, I didn't want to lose, you know, because I, I never lost the case but at that point. So I was in there arguing and, you know, his defendant's lawyer was arguing and finally I was like, bottom line is these elements fit and you know I proved this and this and this and this and this and I remember looking at that kid and then just the look on his face he looked like he was just like like his little spirit was broken you know by me painting this picture of him being a little monster running around and it was just disorderly conduct and um verbal or written assault against the officer because he was cousin of the officer, all this and that, and then so found him guilty. And then his lawyer came up and he's like, "Hey, I want to talk to you about sentencing." You know, I was like, "Well, he's gonna get jail time, obviously, because he has you know a long history with this court." And she was like, "Are you?" They're like, "Well, you need to know his side though, at least, you know, before you sentence." And I was like, "All right, whatever. What what is it? Let's go to my office." You know, trying to act like I was too busy to hear this but I was just excited because it was the first juvenile criminal trial and I won you know and I was like trying to go and whatever so it turns out <clears throat> the boy was out late at night and according to the officer he was running around late at night while he was outside it was December 31st his mom kicked him out because there was these men in the house that were making him feel weird like he said, I felt like I was going to, something was going to happen to me because these guys are in our house. But my mom was drunk. 
And so he's like, I was mad and I didn't want to leave, but I left anyway. And then that's when the cops ran into him. So he was upset when he came out of the house and was walking. I think he was walking to a friend's house. And then the cop stopped him and he was like, just acting out, like geared his anger towards the officers, like who were, he felt was like, you know, I was just walking. That's all I was doing. And, you know, officers on the reservation, they're all overworked, so they're probably like, oh, this kid's out late, he's up to something, you know. But, so I heard that story, and I was like, hmm, heard his side, and then, so finally I was like, well, and that's whenever I, I started the practice of hearing both sides before I did, like, sentencing stuff. And I, I think that's what helped me be more compassionate towards people. Because before that, I was like, no, you broke the law. You know, like, you should know better. But working with kids, like, well, they don't really actually have to know better. You know? Mm-hmm. It's their parents who are supposed to teach them. And this boy came from a house where there was always, you know, house parties. And his mom had a long history of child abuse, being intoxicated around her children. And leaving them here and there, you know, so, and I remember when he told me who his mom was, I was like, I know what house you're talking about, you know, like, so, I put him on probation, told him he had to go to school every day, if he missed one day, he'd go back to jail, you know, stuff like that, and then that's whenever I geared my thinking more towards restorative justice, rather than putting people in jail, and that's what my supervisor was always trying to jam into our heads, you know, restorative justice, restorative justice, but everybody was like, eh, jail time, you know, like, they should know better. But, like, working with kids, it was different. What is restorative justice? Well, it's where my, what I think restorative justice is, is that I wanted to help people rehabilitate themselves, you know, not lock them away in a cell. Like, make them make their wrongs right, kind of. That's what I my view of restorative justice was, or is. Um, so, like, with kids who are, like, say they stole something. Well, you're going to go to that person's house and ask them what you need to do to make this right. You know? Or you're going to do community service and you're going to go find an elder in the community and you're going to go help them pick up trash in their yard, mow their lawn, put plastic on their windows, put screen on their windows, whatever you have to do, you're going to do it. Um, and you're going to go to school every day, and if you miss one day on your attendance report, you're going to go back to jail, you know. And then with adults, I was like, obviously community service, but I also made them go to school. I was like, look, I don't care what you do with all this other stuff. If you don't get your GD by this time, you're going to go back to jail, you know. Because I think education is a big, huge, like, it's really important. I didn't, I didn't really care about education when I graduated from high school. Because I was like, oh, I'll just get a job with the tribe and I'll help my mom take care of my little sister. That's what I'm going to do, you know. And then, so, that's my, what I did. And then, um, there was this point whenever there was a meeting going on and I had to sit in for my boss and no one wanted to listen to me because I didn't have an education and I was like I have good ideas but none of you all you people here at this table think you know better 
just because you guys graduated from college. So that's when I started thinking, well, now I have to go to college, you know. So I went to college, um, but it wasn't until that criminal law class in Dayton, Ohio, when I fully realized that, like, yes, I can go to school. I can go to college and graduate, you know. It's a huge thing for me because out of all my mom's six kids, I was the one that was, like, most likely not to graduate. And then I ended up being the first one to graduate from college. So. How is the legal system on the reservation different from the legal system for South Dakota or the U.S. in general? I think what I like about our legal system, well, one, you don't have to be have a law degree to practice, you know, to be a tribal prosecutor because of the Indian Civil Rights Act. Just as long as we don't incarcerate someone over a year, then you don't have need a law degree. And then, um, and we didn't, uh, my reservation, my tribal council didn't adopt the Tribal Law and Order Act, where it says you have to have a prosecutor who has a law degree, you have to have a public defender who has a law degree, and a judge that has a law degree, right? Just for my office, the only person that needed a law degree was the Attorney General, so, all of us tribal prosecutors, we didn't have law degrees. Um, I, We all had a degree, though. One was in social work, so she was in... She did the youth and family stuff. And uh, Lynette, she had a criminal justice, bachelor's in criminal justice, and I had my tribal law. So, it was... Uh, and then Vernona, kills right, she was the one who... Didn't have a degree, but she's been there forever, so she had experience. Um, but it was all women. All of us prosecutors and attorney general and our legal secretaries. We are the ones who ran, basically ran the prosecutor's office. I thought it was interesting, you know. Um, but, so there's that. And then another unique thing was... What we were trying to do, because our correctional facility didn't have any resources in there, you know. So we were trying to bring GED classes into the criminal justice system. But the local college was like, no, you have to bring them here to us. So then we start sending people from the jail with, you know, with um, the correctional staff over to the local college center. And they would sit in there for four hours and do their work and then bring them back. And then, so we did that instead of finding people money, because no one has money on the reservation. We made them do a lot of community service hours. And then, um, yeah, and so here was our argument for this. And, you know, a lot of people probably think that's wrong, but I started court ordering people to go to ceremonies. Like, sweats. Inipi. Um, and the kids, I was, I told them to go to, like, every summer, the, there's this um, ceremony called Becoming a Woman ceremony for the the females, and then Becoming a Man ceremony for the males. Because that's a, kind of like a rite of passage in Lakota culture, at least my culture. Um, so I told them, I was like, you do this as part of your probation. Now, the judges were like, well, you know, First Amendment, you know, freedom to religion, all this and that. 
And I was like, so you're telling me you would rather have them go to counseling with a counselor than seek another way that's more geared towards our culture and our spirituality? I was like, and honestly, IHS, their their behavioral health is backed up to the point where, you know, you have to make a uh, an appointment months away. IHS is Indian Health Services. Yes. Um, and then so... The judges were like, well, how about this? We make this optional. I'm like, well, they're not going to do it. And I was like, and how I learned about my culture was that I had to actively seek it out. You can't just sit there and expect someone to teach you. And so the judges were against it, but ultimately were like, okay, fine, you know. Um, So we started co-ordering people to go to sweats and um, hoping that would help them. And, but... We didn't start doing it until towards the end of when I was there. So I don't know if they're still doing it. Probably not. Was it successful in the time you were there? Yeah. Because some people would come up to me and be like, yeah, I went to sweat last night and it felt really good. And, you know, I feel really positive. And um, and then the GED, this guy, this inmate, John, he was always coming in my office, you know, like for something, being charged with something so finally I told John I was like John you have two years to get your GED I was like and then if you get it in a year I'll let you out probation your cases will be closed sure enough he got it he was so excited about it and he just brought it to the office and showed us and I was like oh my god that's amazing and I was like that's really awesome John like good for you you know and then I would start seeing people out in the streets and be like, yeah, I'm still taking my GED classes and, you know. And I was like, well, good for you, you know. So it sounds like the tribal justice system is more interested in getting people on the right track to self-correction as opposed to forcing correction or detaining people, locking them up, putting them back in the community and helping them Mm -hmm. get better Emotionally, physically, spiritually. Yes. Because I just don't think um, people, I don't want to say lost their way, but we kind of did. And coming from, you know, the background that I have, growing up in Wendigny, growing up on, you know, food stamps and first of the month, and my mom was addicted to alcohol, and my dad was addicted to alcohol, and... Um, the life I came from and then what got me to where I am now I realized like this is what helped me you know people pushing me to do the right thing even if I didn't want to and education is the key to getting what you want to getting where you feel like you're making the change Um, and to feel worthwhile as an mm -hmm. individual and to know you have value as a human being but I found that that's only part of it Mm -hmm. the other part is spirituality you need that you know we need our ceremonies and um it's I wish that I there was a way I could track that if it's actually helping but you know I can't and I don't know if they're still doing it, but I think we had a good thing going there. And 
don't know, maybe one day I'll go back and try to continue on with it. What do you think is the biggest challenge facing Lakota people today? Um, I think, like, uh, the biggest challenge would be that we're facing is mostly addiction. Methamphetamine's really bad right now on the reservation, from what I've seen in my experience there as a tribal prosecutor. Um, but I also see that spirituality or ceremonies are more people are practicing. And from whenever I was a little girl till now, a lot of people are becoming more active in our ceremonies. So yeah, there's a lot of addiction, but our language and our culture is thriving. So that's one good thing, I guess. And I think, you know, once we get a strong hold on our language and culture, I think everything will be that much easier. If there was one thing you wanted non-Native people to understand or recognize about being Lakota today in 2017, what would that be? I think people need to educate themselves. Educate themselves about Native Americans in this country because we were here before everyone else. And I think that the history books need to not just make us a paragraph anymore. I think the US government needs to own up to what they did to us and I think that's when this country and my people will actually start like healing from all that trauma from a long time ago. People talk about historical trauma and at first I didn't think it was a real thing, but with the more education I got and the more ex life experiences I got, I think that it's a real thing. I don't think it should be something that, you know, you lean on and blame for all your problems in this world. I think it's, you know, you acknowledge it and pray about it. And, and the feeling I got was actual, like, you know, coming from Wendigny, you have all these, you know, the mass grave sites just like up the hill from where I lived. So, what the feeling I always got, and I, you know, I didn't make this a big deal, but like every time I walked past it, I would drop something off, like a piece of my candy bar, or, you know, pick a little bit of sage and put it there. And you could, it's just a feeling. You can't. Well, I can't explain what historical trauma, how it makes me feel. It's just like this feeling of like, I don't know, makes me sad, you know. But how my ancestors fought for me, I want to make them proud. And I want to continue trying to help my people. Um, I guess, and this is dramatic, but... <laughs> learn to live in this world, you know what I mean? Yeah.
That's what I want to do. Want to learn more? Download or stream more full-length interwoven episodes available from iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more podcast news or to catch new episodes first, join the conversation on our social media channels or visit us online at Plymouth.org. Interwoven is brought to you by Plymouth Plantation, hosted by Hilary Goodnow and produced by Tom Begley. Our original theme music, Voices from the Past, was composed by John Dante Previdini. Thanks for listening.